and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is Jeffrey Lee Campbell. Now Jeff has such an amazing story to tell. He basically went from selling candy in a theater to touring with Sting as his guitarist on the Nothing Like the Sun tour back in 1987-1988. His experience became a book called Do Stand So Close. Now I've listened and read a lot of music books in my life. This one is by far my favorite. I listen to the Audible version. Jeff narrates it. It's funny. It's very interesting. You get a good perspective of a touring musician on the road. We talk about a song with Sting. And now he's a Broadway musician, or before the pandemic, he was a Broadway musician. And we kind of talk about how the last year has affected his life. He's worked on some amazing shows like Mamma Mia, School of Rock, The Who's Tommy. I mean, great shows. And Jeff, such a nice guy, really interesting and funny guy. And I hope you enjoy my conversation with him. So Jeff, thank you uh, so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Noel. Thanks yeah, for having so, me. Yeah. So before we kind of like look back you know, with the book and everything else, uh, obviously 2020 was, you know, a hellacious year with the pandemic and everything shutting down and you being, you know, a uh, Broadway performer. Um, how did the last year, like, you know, I don't want to say affect you because I mean, it's affected everybody, but like, just like your like uh, experience last year. Well, it's funny. Uh, a friend said to me, said, wow, your life must be so different with the pandemic. And, I said, actually, not really. It just financially, it's different. But right. my typical day, I live in Manhattan. I live like 10 minutes from the theater district. So I walk to work. But my typical day, even when I'm doing a show, is I'm at home, I'm on the computer, I'm writing, I'm reading, I'm composing. So I live a very kind of isolated life, artist life anyway. Right. Whereas I have friends that had nine to five jobs that disappeared and they're working from home and they're going, wow, my life is really different. And except for the three hours a day that I would go to the theater, my life is very much the yeah. same. It's just, I've, I always joke with my wife, I've learned to make a grocery list because we used to just like eat, we would eat at different times. We'd have dinner on the fly, pick up right. whatever we wanted. And now it's like, I want for dinner tonight. What do you want to watch on Netflix? So it's, we, it's been nice for us rebonding, but because uh, yeah. usually we're two ships passing in the night, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, it, it's funny, it, except for having the work, which I miss, and I certainly miss the paycheck, my life has been kind of the same. And once I figured out that going to the grocery store wasn't going to kill me, it was a little bit better. The first couple of months, it was touch and go, you know, you felt like you were in Mission Impossible or something. Yeah, it was, it was pretty scary. And just, you yeah. know, finding, you know, that last roll of toilet paper oh, or sure. paper towels was like a godsend, you know. <laughs> or, or did that guy that's 10 feet away from me who just sneezed give me a right. death sentence? Yeah. Yeah. So now I've learned, hey, I've made it knock on wood 11 months without getting sick. So yeah. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and wait for a vaccine, you know. Right. Absolutely. Like similar for, for me, it was like traveling to New York every day, you know, come home and kind of eating whenever my wife has a normal job. And now it's like she's back to work. I'm working from home. We decide what's for dinner. Are we making, you know, stuff that we've never made before? And it's, sure. it's you know, it's great. Except for my, you know, waistline, but that's another story. Yeah, well, I agree. That's, <laughs> yeah. you know, af after the first couple of months, my wife and I realized we're like, wow, this isn't a holiday, is it? This isn't a vacation. I can't have yeah. pizza and ice cream and french every fries every day. Mm -hmm. At first, it's the comfort food. Yeah. So you're kind of treating yourself, self-medicating with carbs and sugar. Right. And then you start going, I can't do this for the next year. You know, I have to kind of get back on the program here. And 
So it's it's been an adjustment for sure. Uh, my friend who's uh, does my investments for me works for Merrill Lynch, and he always jokes that retirement is half the income and twice the spouse. And it's like <laughs> like we found that out this year because we're like we're around we're under underfoot all the time. We're not used yeah. to being together. So right, it's been, it's been good. But I'm very. I was saying to my wife the other day, I'm very proud that we haven't strangled each other yet because we have seen a lot of each other for the past eleven months. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, yeah. probably the biggest uh, benefit of all this is probably divorce attorneys. <laughs> really? you know, yeah, and or, liquor liquor stores. Liquor stores. Yeah, exactly. And, and probably criminal defense attorneys if you're gonna kill kill your spouse before you divorce them. But that's that's, a, that's another story. Um, yeah. Have you kind of heard like when Broadway could potentially like reopen? Well, the good news is I do have work on the other end of this. I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, if I didn't have work, what I would have done. I do know people a little younger than me that have maybe made some life changes. They're like, I'm not going to stay in New York waiting for work that's two years out, three years right. out. I'm going to go back to where I'm from or whatever. But uh, uh, I do have work waiting on the other side. I'm at the point in my career where it, it's not like I'm like, wow, should I go back to school and become a lawyer? I mean, I'm not right. at that point in my life. So it's like you wait. And uh, yeah. I uh, was... I just started Mrs. Doubtfire in March. Okay. And I was supposed to do that for four months. Then I was going to transition to the new Michael Jackson musical that was slated to come in in July. Right. But now, of course, now everything's blown up. And uh, who knows? I think Broadway's going to reopen in waves. I heard a rumor about Hamilton maybe reopening in, on July 4th. But I'll okay. tell you, when I watch the news and hear about the vaccines, I'm not sure if they're going to get there or not. But I have been told September. But it wouldn't be the first time they changed the time frame on me. Right. So, yeah. I mean, and like when we, we originally shut down, they said, see in a month. It's wow. not been 11. Yeah. You know? Right. Now, those theaters, I mean, obviously they're all historic, but they're very tight and they're very cramped. Yeah, yeah. And they have to have like every seat packed in. Are they going to like have every other seat? Or I mean, has that even been well, discussed? Do you know anything yeah. about that? The producers contend that physical distancing will not work with their financial model. Okay. I think it's going to be a combination of, I mean, it could be anything in play, uh, some uh, support from the government. I know they passed the last plan, I think, called Save Our Stages Act. So there might be some right. support for them where they can run it. Maybe the theater owners will reduce rent. You know, maybe we'll only do four shows a week. I've, mm -hmm. I've heard only four or five shows are going to open it first. Okay. So uh, it's not going to be like a flip the switch and all 25 shows. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. There might be union concessions involved. I might take, have to take a pay cut temporarily. It happened after 9-11 where we took a pay cut temporarily. So it's, it's kind of similar to 9-11, except for the fact that, you know, after 9-11, Connecticut and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and Long Island stepped up and really came to support Broadway because nobody was flying into the city. Right. But uh, now it's about your health. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling people, you know, the Broadway demographic is not the same as Cancun spring break demographic. You know, you see these parties with 20 year olds yeah. partying and they're, you know, they're in, uh, they're bulletproof. Right. But the Broadway demographic is middle-aged people with disposable income. Right. And they're like, I'm not going to spend $150 to yeah. go and possibly get sick. I think you'll see masking. I think you'll see touchless services. Who knows about concession stands? Yeah. I don't know. We're going to find out. I think right. that what they're hoping is if they open a limited amount of shows, 
the demand will be enough to keep the, the doors open. Yeah. Already the production is kind of like nervous because obviously like I think Frozen was the first one to like close up shop and like a big business like that. Well, I, I kept saying as the shutdown lingered or, or extended, I said, you know, the, to me, the vulnerable shows are the shows that have been around three or four years. They were kind of doing mediocre box office. They were staying open, but they're kind of like, I was like, because they're having to pay, it costs a certain amount to tread water. There is, right. you know, uh, it's not like the theaters can get any new shows in, but I have heard, you know, you're, you've got leases on equipment, wardrobe, the physical space of the theater. So they're paying something, you know, everybody's rent didn't disappear just because of the pandemic. Right. So I was surprised that other shows didn't close. And once we got it past about six months, I thought, well, I guess everybody's going to ride this out. Yeah. But I did recently Mean Girls did announce that it was not going to stay yeah. open. So Mean Girls is, an, is the second casualty. I assume everybody else will stay if they've made it 11 months. You know, they've been paying whatever it's cost them to stay open for 11 yeah. months. So and even loading your show out is very expensive. So if they close the show to clear out of the theater costs yeah. them a million dollars. So they're like, well, we might as well just uh, hold, you know, just hold it here for now. But uh, the irony is, and I will see if this plays out. I've read articles that said the big, the big main shows like Wicked, Lion King, uh, uh, Phantom of the Opera, right. they really depend on international tourists. Course, right. Which I did Mamma Mia for 14 years. In the last few years, I never heard English being spoken in the theater. Right. It was always Portuguese, Japanese, French. Mm. So they're saying actually the big hit shows might be at a disadvantage because everybody in the tri-state area has seen Wicked or Phantom plenty of, of times. Right. Whereas Michael Jackson or Jagged Little Pill or something, or, you know, something that's new and unknown yeah. might actually, so we'll see. It'll be interesting to see who reopens first. Right. I had tickets for Sing Street and that was oh, yeah, right, come right, out right. last March mm -hmm. and then, uh, Unfortunately, you know, hopefully that comes back because that was a fantastic movie and the music's is, right. Right. Is, is I think great. well, that's a perfect example of something that may actually be positioned a little better. Right. And is you know, if we can get on the other side of this thing, you know, I'm sure you've heard everybody saying the roaring twenties a hundred years later, but I think there's gonna be a real demand for entertainment and Agreed. socializing and yeah. all that once it's safe. So I think Broadway will ultimately explode. I've seen people say Broadway will never be back. It's dead. I'm going, you have no concept of time. Right. I mean, they're not going to tear down Yankee Stadium because of COVID-19. Yeah. It will eventually come back in civil Broadway, yeah. whether it's one year or five years, I don't know. Uh, hopefully less than five, of course, but Broadway will be back. I mean, a year or two in the scheme of things when Broadway's been running for a hundred years yeah. is not really, even though it's unprecedented, it's too, you know, it's too much money in Broadway. Right. It, it's coming back and it really drives the economy of the city. I mean, the hotels, the restaurants, of course, yeah. people, people come to see Hamilton and then go out to eat or get eat. a hotel. Right. They yeah. don't come to the hotel or the restaurant. They come to the show. show right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think any of these shows kind of to supplement some of the other, like, uh, they're not, like you said before, they're not going to do eight shows a week to supplement some of the nights to like some virtual shows. Well, you know, uh, Hamilton, of course, streamed a show, and I heard that Dear Evan Hansen and Come From Away are going to do streaming. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't know. That's kind of uncharted territory for theater. The, the thing about right. theater is the live, you're there. Yeah. You know, it's what I learned 
when I first started doing theater after being a rock and roller for years, I was kind of like, eh, I, I wasn't that excited about being in musical theater, but right. doing it for years, I see it's really, you're working on a tightrope every night. I mean, things yeah. go south. People forget props, stages break, right. uh, you know, uh, school of rock one night, the, 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 the lift in the middle of the stage mm. broke. And so there was a big break in the uh, uh, intermission. Then right. they started back and then it broke again. And I heard people <laughs> booing in the right. audience. It's, like, it, it's, it's, you know, uh, a friend of mine is an airline pilot and he said this about flying. And I think it's the same way about Broadway, 98% boredom, 2% sheer terror. You know, yeah. it's like 2% of the time you don't know what's going to happen. Right. Most of the time it, everything's the same. So, yeah. And then both, you know, flight or where we show you clap at the end. So. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. exactly. But uh, the nights that things go sideways, it's very interesting to be there. You know? Right. When you can tell an actor has forgotten their lines, but they have to say something. Um, and they just start vamping and improvising. And you're in the pit going, whoa, where's this going? Right. <laughs> because, yeah, at least like compared to being on stage at a rock concert, they see you where in the pit they don't see Really well, true. And, and a lot, unfortunately, now a lot of Broadway, the band's in a remote room, like on a different okay. floor or down in right. the basement, which that was one of the things I was so excited at Mrs. Doubtfire because we were in an open pit. I could actually okay. see humans in the audience, right. yeah. which had been uh, seven years since I'd seen humans in the audience because wow. the end of the last two years of Mamma Mia and three years at School of Rock. I was in a remote pit or a covered pit. So you never mm -hmm. saw any humans. So it was, it was kind of a drag. I, I subbed on Ain't Too Proud to Beg, or Ain't Too Proud, I guess it's called, the Temptations musical. Yeah. And part of the gig was learning some dance steps. And in the show, you had to get up and dance on stage, right. which was terrifying at first. <laughs> but I came to that be my favorite part of the show. Because right. when the screen went up and the band was on stage, the audience went crazy. Yeah. And for five minutes, I was on stage. Uh, uh, you know, when I was on tour with Sting, some nights it was exhausting to get on stage and you'd be like, yeah. but you still had to smile and get it up and, and put on a show for people. Right. And I've always told my actor friends, it's like being on stage is much more difficult and demanding than being under the stage. Yeah. In the pit, if I don't want to smile, if I don't want to shave, yeah. Yeah. who cares? But yeah. you also get ignored a lot too. So it's a trade-off, but it's a lot of yeah. pressure to, to really bring it eight shows a week or, with yeah. staying three or four nights a week, you know, it's, right. it was exhausting. So yeah. the pit's the pit's pretty relaxed. Right. And you mentioned in the book, you know, uh, Do Stand So Close, which I listened to it and it's it's fantastic. It's, I, I read or listen to a lot of rock books and this one's like probably the best one that I, of someone someone's life on the road. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's very in-depth and it's very humorous. And I, the audio, I listen. I recommend people listen to the audiobook because it's a lot of you know little you know uh, sound effects and whatnot too it's it, it's pretty good now did you kind of have like a diary because it's i can imagine not remembering everything if you hadn't written this down well i i started out i was telling a, a friend a story a long time lifelong friend i was telling some story and he's like man i never heard that one before because i was telling these stories at cocktail parties or right. you know family reunions bars sitting in bars telling yeah. stories and i told a friend a story and he said you've never told me that one before and i thought he said you really need to write this down yeah and i was like yeah, i don't know but 
one of my most treasured keepsakes is the itineraries from that tour. I have the okay. original itineraries in a big binder. Right. And I've always thought in case of fire or flood, that would be one of the first things I grabbed to, you know, yeah. get to keep. So I decided a few years ago, I need to digitize this. And I digitized, you know, I have a scrapbook full of articles and pictures mm -hmm. and ticket stubs and laminates. And then every day where we were for a whole year. So I, as I digitized it, I thought, you know, I would find notes scribbled on the itinerary, but the year was so life-changing for me. It was kind of easy to remember stuff. You know, it gets a little blurry, but you don't right. forget meeting Eric Clapton in the backstage in Tokyo. Yeah. Know? And so, but it was funny, thanks to the internet, you go back and start looking at things, you go, oh, wow, I misremembered the sequence of these events. I thought this happened before this yeah. happened. So. I don't know how people wrote books pre-internet because the internet was great to confirm. Oh yeah, we did cross paths with Michael Jackson's bad tour in France, yeah. but he was right. there the day before us or something. So, uh, but a lot of the memories were stuck in my head, but I had some help between the internet and old, you know, articles I had clipped from papers and stuff. Yeah. Like one of my favorite stories, cause I'm a big sports fan, big tennis fan is, the whole exchange between Sting and Matt Thielander. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he just won the, the, I guess the French Cup, but the French Open for, I don't know how yeah. many times. Yeah. So he traded a gr Grammy for, for a French Open trophy. That's well, it. and that was that was one of those stories where I swear, I, you, again, it's been 30 years, over 30 years. So you start going, am I imagining this? But yeah. you could find that story on the internet. It's more right. than urban legend. They would talk about yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, and I do remember we had played at Wembley Stadium in the morning for the Mandela Freedom Fest. And then we were jetting to Berlin that night. And I got in the van and I felt something under my feet and I pulled out this bag. And there's the French Open trophy, like in a bag on the floor <laughs> yeah. of the van. And I thought, man, that guy spent his whole life working on this. He just gave it to Sting. He's saying, here, have a Grammy, you know, so. Yeah. Right. I mean, if, he, if he was like that reckless with it, you probably could have taken it. Sting yeah, was like, right. I have no have idea. Been. It could have well, been over your shoulder. And I'm a sports fan as well. So it was really cool for me playing a lot of the venues. Right. I mean, like the old Boston Garden. And I'm sitting there thinking yeah. about, you know, this Celtics or Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And you're like, these are, are the LA Forum. Right. Which, you know, they play the Staples Center. Now, by the time you're thinking, this is where the Lakers, you know, and you're playing yeah. all these venues where these incredible. And sometimes they would take us into the, like the home dressing room and show us like the jerseys and stuff. Right. So there was a few jocks in the band and uh, yeah. we would uh, be in there like in total awe of athletes, you know? Yeah. And it, it kind of like one of the other stories, I think you guys were in Detroit, you want to see a Pistons game and you oh, right, right. that they played in, um, at that point they were at the Silver Dome, I think. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Cause I used to work for ESPN. We did an NBA finals at there when they played, I think the Lakers and they played the Spurs. Uh -huh. So you're in middle of nowhere, like, you know, right. Yeah, 30 oh, miles away from Detroit. Detroit, right. I think they ended up like selling that thing for a few hundred bucks and then destroying it. Destroying right? it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you, you always hear bad raps about Detroit, but I mean, it's gotten a lot better. The food is yeah. great. You know, downtown yeah. is, is. I like, you know, yeah. I like cities like Detroit and Cincinnati and Milwaukee, yeah. those Midwestern cities. Right. They, they just got a vibe to them. They do. Know, yeah. Uh, much more so than. I don't know. I'm not gonna throw any cities under the bus, but I, 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 I like know those. what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. like those places, right? Because also, I got another chuckle. Is like you're being part of the band and you're like private jets and you know you do everything, and then, then there's the crew. 
which in my job I was used to being part of the crew. So it's like long days, you know, yeah. the shitty hotels and stuff like that. But going to all these cities, you try to like get the local food and you know get as much as you can, you know, and the, the enjoy the local sceneries uh, as much yeah. as you can because there is some downtime. Well, and unfortunately, and I talk about it in the book, you know. As the tour dragged out, I became less adventurous and did less right. things. Yeah. And I really regret some of the places I saw in Europe. And then when we did the Amnesty International tour, we were in Africa and India. I was just so fried by that point. It's mm -hmm. like, I really should have gone to see the Berlin Wall. I really should have gone to see the right. Vatican. But I didn't do these things. And I thought, ah, well, I'll do it on the next tour. And then it, it didn't happen. You know? yeah. So uh, it was a combination of fatigue and the fact that some of my peers had been around the world a few times, so you couldn't act too uh, excited yeah. about things. You were supposed to be cool, like, oh, yeah, Rome, who cares, right? Right. But um, it is funny, because we did play, in that year, we played 181 shows. Right. And it's funny, right. I'll, I'll talk to people today, and they go, yeah, we got a big tour coming up, man, 40 shows. I'm like, 40? 40 shows. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, and most people now... The, the big shots they get on their private jet after the gig and go home for a few days so, yeah but you know when we went to europe we were there three months Month. uninterrupted and as i mentioned in the book pre-internet so right. it was like it was like being on the moon yeah know? i'm wandering around in these cities where i don't speak the language not talking to anybody back at home right the, you know the telephone was it you know so there's no emails or facetime Nothing. or anything like that so it was it was exhausting it was unbelievable but it was incredibly exhausting because Sting, he, he put the pedal to the metal. We worked nonstop. Yeah. And I know like you are a big Sting fan, a big Fleets fan going, going in, into that. Were there any like songs that you absolutely loved, but by the end of the tour, you're like, I can't play this anymore? You know, I, again, I'm the kind of guy that's built, I played Dancing Queen for 14 years eight shows a week right yeah if, if i can play dancing queen for 14 years i yeah. can play any sting or police right. for a year so the answer to that would be a resounding no i mean uh the, the excitement wore off uh but i mean like i don't care every night when we started every breath you take it was exciting to me yeah and to me there were songs that we didn't play that i wish we had played you know that i look back and go man i wish we had done that or even on our tour at the end of the night, Sting would play Message in a Bottle and Roxanne solo right. on, a, on his classical yeah. guitar. And we didn't, the band didn't play. And right. I would have killed to have played either one of those tunes yeah. with the band rocking out like the early right. police arrangements. Mm -hmm. And we, we never did to Do Do Do, which is one of my favorite police right. tunes. I hear it all the time on Sirius XM. And I go, yeah. this is, or every little thing she does is magic. Right. We never played that. Yeah. So there were some tunes that I was like, I wish we had done, but I never got tired of any of it. It was, yeah. It was fun, you know. I mean, yeah, I, I saw the, the, the tour at NASA Coliseum. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was the first time I saw Sting and the big police fan. And it was, it was, I, I loved it. But unfortunately, didn't play my favorite song. You guys didn't play my favorite song, Fortress yeah. Around Your Heart. Oh, yeah, yeah, we didn't guys, really. We played it on tour, so we weren't doing it at NASA Coliseum. I don't think you guys did it that show because that was what I look back at the, the tour program and they interviewed everybody, yeah, and they asked, uh, what song do you really look forward to playing? And I said, Fortress Around Your Heart. Yeah. At the time, I'd really, you know, right. funny, I'd learned that tune. I'd learned Message in a Bottle, all these songs. And then when you sit down with Sting and he starts playing, we're going, oh, that's the way you do it. Because yeah. the fingerings were totally different. And it was right. great to sit with the composer and go, oh, I'm overcomplicating this. This is a right. much more 
uh, obvious uh, progression, but I had just made it overly complicated. But uh, yeah, Fortress, I love that tune. I think the Blue Turtles record is great. I was oh yeah, such a fan of that album. I, I you know, it's it's crazy. But out of all the stuff, Set Them Free is still my favorite tune. This thing is done in his solo career. Yeah, the it's first a, one. It's so good. It, it's so good. Uh, over the summer, we went to um, Vermont, and they had a little like antique store, and they had a little record, old used record display. Mm-hmm. And I, I already have uh, Blue Turtles on. I had it on cassette, CD, and you know, streaming. Never had it on a vinyl. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, they had a used copy there. I'm like, for two bucks, I'm buying this. Yeah, sure. You know, just just to have it, you know, as, as a keepsake. Because like you said, I that album, like the Russians is yeah. another fantastic yeah. song. We did play that one. We'd go yeah. to Europe. Sting would play Russians. Right. And I played I play Gong. That was my no, only it's... job in that song, to just hit the gong, which also an Englishman in New York, that was my only job to play Gong. But uh, yeah, uh, I had seen, and I talk about this in my book, because yeah. uh, I moved to New York I'd been in North Carolina playing gigs right. and I was like, I, you know, I was kind of like, you know, spinning my wheels. And I thought I'm going to move to New York for a year and see what happens. Yeah. And as I joke, it's like the eve of my one year anniversary, which happens to be today, February 4th. Uh, the eve of my one year anniversary, I was at Madison Square Garden with Sting. I could not believe how fast my yeah. life had changed. He hired me. I'd been in New York eight months when he hired me. I was selling candy on Broadway when he hired me. I couldn't get enough gigs, even playing in weddings to pay my bills. So I was selling candy at the Broadway theaters at the concession stands. And I literally went from selling candy to two weeks later being on Saturday Night Live with Sting to a month later being in front of a quarter million people in Rio de Janeiro. So it was whirlwind. But when I came to New York, or all of a sudden I'm with these guys. And a year earlier, I'd watched the documentary Bring on the Night, which right. was the documentary of the Blue Turtles tour. Mm-hmm. And I thought Daryl Jones and Branford Marsalis and Kenny Kirkland and Omar Hakeem. I was like, mm-hmm. these guys are gods. Mm-hmm. And then boom, a year later, I'm like <laughs> hanging out with all these guys, right. working with them and going out to eat and mm-hmm. you know, going to ball games with them. I was like, mm-hmm. Wow, talk about dreams coming true! It was amazing for me. I, it was it was all I could do to not be starstruck most of the tour. Yeah, and because obviously you you mean the rookie on there, and it's like a lot of peer pressure. I'd, I'd imagine, and yeah, you talk yeah. about that in in the book as well. Um, it seemed like uh, Branford kind of marched to his own drummer. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, you know, I, I would I would sit <laughs> I would sit in dressing rooms and listen to him being interviewed by people, and he would say the most like outrageous thing just to try to get a rise out of the right. oh i hate that song oh i love that song yeah. you know and so i say he's just doing this to like stir things up but he definitely and but he, he he befriended me and took me under his arm under his wing and i really think that branford's i address it in the book yeah because i'd met branford in europe on a tour with delmar brown's band right. and uh that's where sting first heard me and so Branford, I became friends. So as I started auditioning for Sting, like the third day in, Branford showed up and gave me a big hug right in front of Sting. And I still think that might have made the difference because mm-hmm. Sting saw that Branford liked me. So he's like, yeah. okay, let's do it. You know, it's like if Branford's cool with Jeff being here, I'm cool with Jeff being here. Right. So uh, I call it the Marcellus hug of validation in the yeah. book. But uh, so right. Branford probably landed the gig for me from being such a, sweetheart and we still stay in touch he's one of the few guys i still stay in touch with from time to time from the tour but uh uh, yeah it was it was amazing being with those guys yes because you you mentioned also like there's so many talented musicians out there and but 
having that connection with Brantford, I mean, that's will put you up, you know, higher than the other ones because, you know, he'll give you the seal. Well, and, you know, blame it on my parents or whatever, but uh, as I talk about in the book, it's like being able to get along with people and being nice. I mean, right. it's, everybody can play. There's nobody yeah. auditioning for the sting band that can't play. Right. But I've been around, uh, I used to work with a singer who would refer to certain musicians as being socially inept. You know, she's like, yeah, he can play, but God, you know, another friend of mine calls them lovable losers. Right. <laughs> but so being able to get along with people, especially when you're on the road for a year and bands and yeah. dressing rooms and airplanes, you got to be able to get along with people. So I always say to people, my skills are, I'm tall enough to ride the ride, but probably my personality is what landed me the gig because, yeah. you know, I was able to get along with the guys. That's like you said that that's that, that's key. Yeah. Have you um, have you seen Sting in concert recently or uh, since then? No, uh, it's it's funny. I mean, maybe I should go see a therapist about this. But I'm always <laughs> uh, I look at Sting. I mean, we've seen each other in nature together. I went to see him in the last ship on Broadway right. and hung out with him afterwards, and yeah. we bumped into each other from time to time. But uh, people will call me and say, "Hey, you going to the Sting show?" I go if he calls and invites me, I'll go. Yeah, but, right. You know, you you don't go around the world and sit backstage with a guy for a year and then go buy a ticket and sit in the balcony and cheer right. him on. It's the, the dynamic is different, and it's funny right. because I, I was on nothing like the Sun, his second tour, and then I would do gigs years later, and people would call Fields of Gold or something like that. I mean, I don't know that song, but you played with Sting. I was like, right, I didn't play with him then. Yeah, and I don't. As far as making the joke about a therapist, um, uh, you know, again, maybe this is my baggage, but I always uh, compare it to like, once you, if you divorce your wife, you don't keep her picture on the mantle. Sure. You move on with your life. Move so on, I were very close for a year and then he hired a new band and I moved on with my life. Yeah. So yeah. I respect the guy. I love the guy. I can, no, I'm no longer capable of being a fan in that way after working with him for that long. Yeah. Well, that's a great point. Yeah. You, you refer to it at the end of the book as the uh, five, the five letters. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> five letter, five letter word. Five letter word, yeah. <laughs> you always hear about four letter words, but in yeah. our house, the five letter word is sting. Because right. uh, you know, my wife will say, "Hey, did you mention the five letter word?" I'm going, "Yes." You know, yeah. It's like, and you know, I feel like some people might look at me and go, "We get it, Jeff. You played with Sting, but it's a huge credit, and it's it's paid dividends for now thirty some years, right. and I'm very proud of it." I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, "You know." No disrespect, but it's not like it's a Rick Astley credit. You know, it's not a Backstreet Boys credit. Right. It's a Sting credit. You yeah. know, he's one of those guys that has one name and everybody knows who he is. And, right. and when I was with him, he was only a few years removed from the police. So he was still a huge rock star yeah. at that point. You know, uh, people would be like, oh, we missed the police. Will they get back together? Because it was only a few years ago. Yeah. And so we were playing huge stadiums. Uh, he was a huge rock star. Much to my chagrin, at that point, big artists didn't play the late night shows. So I didn't get to do David Letterman or Jay Leno. We right. did Saturday Night Live and that was it. And I was like, I wish I'd gotten to do those TV shows. But at the time, yeah. he was too famous. He was huge, right. stuff. Yeah, because so. yeah. Yeah, he's a type of artist where I would totally respect the fact. I mean, I like the projects he's currently doing, but he does so many of them. And mm -hmm. You know, doesn't oh, we're gonna do another Blue Turtles album, or just gonna like rehash the you know the police? Right. 
everything is different and it's you know he he and, and it's it's great it's like i said some things don't i don't personally like but i respect the fact that he does it you know well i trust that in my book because you see yeah. so many artists that find a formula for success and they just repeat it over and over right. and over yeah uh, a friend of mine one time said was talking about an artist's new record and somebody said I haven't heard it yet. He said, yes, you have. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's true. You know, you kind of know what it's going to sound like. But with Sting, yeah. it's the loot. It's this. And, it, and, yeah. and ironically, I was talking to somebody just the other day and saying, I really like The Last Ship, his Broadway show. And yeah. some people don't like that. I said, in some ways, to me, it rocked harder than his next album, 57th and 9th, which was his big rock album. Yeah. I, just, I thought there was some real muscle in The Last Ship, some tender moments and some muscle, too. So, But I do, I applaud him always trying different things. Yeah, absolutely. So what was your favorite sing song? And that we played or just? Just overall. Well, that's like, what's your favorite Beatles song? What's yeah. your favorite Prince song? <laughs> right. So many good ones. But I tell you, the, it was funny. I went to school in Miami in the late 70s. And at that point in time, the Bee Gees lived in Miami and Saturday right. Night Fever ruled mm -hmm. the roost. Yeah. So I spent the late 70s listening to disco, the Bee Gees, mm -hmm. Miami, South Florida kind of vibe. So I went back home in 1980. And my girlfriend's younger brother said something about the police. And I was like, who? Yeah. And he says, you know, Roxanne, message of all. I'm like, who? Yeah. He's like, the police. And I'm like, and back then, anybody who was called the anything is corny. That's like, right. is, you know, because fans weren't the. That had been the yeah. Rolling Stones and the Beatles. But in the 70s, you were Earth, Wind, and Fire. Or, yeah, of course, know. yeah. So, uh, I, I dismissed the name. And, he, and, it, and Zenyatta Mandata had just come out. Yeah. So he played it for me and my head exploded. I was like, this is so good. Yeah. So I immediately went back and got uh, Rodriguez de Blanc and Outlanders de Amor to check them out. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think Roxanne is great. I love So Lonely. But Zenyatta holds a special place in my heart because that was the first record I'd heard by them. Mm -hmm. And to me, I think When the World is Running Down right. is awesome. I think Don't Stand So Close. Uh, and like I said, to Do, Do, Do. I just... Yeah. I love that record, Canary in a Coal Mine. Just everything about that record. Just, right. It's my favorite record. I mean, much more so yeah. than Synchronicity. You know, it's probably maybe my least favorite least record. Favorite. Did, which yeah. I always say that about certain artists, their biggest record, whether it's Prince yeah. and Purple Rain or Stevie Wonder and Songs of the Key of Life, have this theory. It's like Michael Jackson, does say Thriller, Michael Jackson. It's like, I like the album before. Right. By the time oh, they're huge, <laughs> yeah. it seems a little kind of like, okay, this is a little... Uh, self-conscious at this point yeah so to me as big as every breath you take and king of pain and wrapped around your finger there's a certain like vibe about demolition man or right, yeah. um, you know it just uh, i don't know just was less self-conscious so uh yeah I, I have my theory like the album before the album is usually my favorite yeah, right yeah. yeah i was kind of glad that demolition man kind of came back in prominence when the movie yeah. came out right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, there's some fun stuff on there um, right. and like i said uh, the first three albums especially yeah i don't know but spirits in the material world i loved that song right. yeah i used to hear it on the radio and just go crazy so yeah lots of great stuff right and you mentioned earlier like serious xm i'm surprised they haven't had like a sting slash police channel i'm it's, surprised they haven't they should have know. me on there and let me talk about my book <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah. you know yeah yeah did you guys kind of like nudge sting to play a couple songs it was the set list determined just by him or well the set list was 
a living thing. It changed uh, from time to time. You say, oh, let's add this. I talk about in the book, we add murder by numbers right. one night to get back at Jerry, Jimmy Swaggart. That's right, yeah. Jimmy Swaggart had uh, denounced the tune and then he got in trouble with the prostitutes. This thing said, okay, yeah. now my turn. And so <laughs> he added murder by numbers, which is a great story in the book because uh, we learned it very quickly and then I forgot how it went that night. Right. And then a, a few weeks later, we play in Los Angeles and Andy Summers is there and he tells Sting, yeah, just playing a wrong chord and murder by numbers. Yeah. So that song kind of haunted me throughout the book. But, uh, uh, you know, like I said, I asked him to play to do, do, do. He wouldn't do it. Uh, one time at Soundcheck, we played Walking on the Moon and he was like, yeah, maybe we should play the tune. I'll, I'll write a bridge and we should play it. I'm like, dude do not write any more chords to this song. Yeah. It's perfection as it right. was, as it is. So, yeah. but, uh, you know, he was the boss. He, uh, right. I've seen a bunch of times when I went a couple of my friends and we always had a running joke, what song, what police song is he going to stingify tonight? Right. Right. Cause it was always, a, you know, a different, you know, like sure. you mentioned every birth take or something like that they always kind of changed it a little bit. Well, you so got we into that, that, that world, world music thing, and you're right. And it's like, even when the police reunited, some of the explorations yeah. they did, I was like, really? You know, yeah. it's like, this is, this is, seems, again, self-conscious. It's like, just play the tune. I just, right. I, I, yeah, I like it when it sounds like the record, not to the point that I'm just listening to the record. I remember right. seeing Janet Jackson at Madison Square Garden in maybe 89, and I left the show thinking, I think I just listened to her CD at Madison's card. It was yeah. all samples and loops and it didn't feel so. I like it when there's no sample background vocals and Sting and or Stuart and Andy are trying to sing the mel the harmonies on right. Roxanne and it sounds horrible yeah. or whatever. I'm like, that's rock and roll. Yeah. Uh, even when we toured, what, in 87, 88, he was using his Sinclair to sample, to use samples of background vocals. And we were on the Amnesty tour and bassist Daryl Jones was playing with Peter Gabriel. Right. Daryl had played the Blue Turtles tour. And I guess it was Set Them Free or King of Pain or something. We were using background vocal samples that were triggered from a keyboard. Mm -hmm. And it didn't sound like the record. It was the record. It was the actual digital recording yeah. of the vocals on the record. And I remember Daryl saying, man, you guys sound great on those background vocals. <laughs> I'm right. like, uh, well, that's Delmar pushing down a key. It, it's yeah. the album you're hearing. So, uh, mm -hmm. Even then, so what we're talking 33, 34 years ago, it was sampling was already being used. And now, you know, every week I look forward to watching Saturday Night Live to see if the band is going to actually sound like a band. Band, right. And, you know, if it's hip hop, I understand it. I get it. You know, right. DJ samples, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I'm always frustrated when they're acting like they're a rock band, but they're not. It's samples. Yeah. Uh, just this past week, Machine Gun Kelly was on there. It's like, that's not his guitar I'm hearing. Yeah. Or Katy Perry will be on there and like, let the guitar player play. Stop using the sampled guitar. But they're so concerned about making it sound like the record. And I think now fans are accustomed to it sounding like the record that we don't get those, that perfect imperfection that used to make it feel alive. I mean, that's, I always felt that way about the Eagles. They sounded so good. It was kind right. of boring. You know? <laughs> I like it when it's funky. Yeah. But do you think like now it's, it should just sound live and like funky just because there's no more record sales. Yeah. I mean, like it wasn't at the point of like making it sound just like a record to, to buy the, you know, the record. Now yeah. it's like no one buys it anymore. Well, but again, you know, rock and roll, the young eat the old, that's the way it works. So right. 
the generation that's in their 20s, 30s now that goes to concerts, they've grown up on hearing it sound like the record because it is the record. The digital technology mm. is such that, uh, and, and it's easier. It's easier on the sound guys. It's easier on the singer if they're having a bad night to have mm. the, the track there. Right. Uh, you know, you'll see these pop stars insisting that they're singing live, Britney Spears or Madonna. Mm. It's like, oh yeah, they're singing live but you're hearing, hearing right. the recording is up, mm -hmm. turned up to 10 and their vocal mics turned up to two. So it's like, oh yeah, they're singing live. And they go, hello, New Jersey. But then and all of a sudden yeah. you, you hear the record. So I mm -hmm. don't know. It's uh, I think it's what people are now accustomed to. And that's why I'm always so excited when I hear bad background vocals. Like, oh, thank you. Yeah. And, you know, it's, or not bad, but just live. Yeah. I always say to people, if it sounds like the record, it usually is the record. Yeah. What was your, like your favorite uh, like venue to play? Not just the city, just the venue. It sounded great. Just as an atmosphere. Well, the garden of Madison Square right. Garden, of course, was prestigious. Uh, we played, I talk about it in the book, in uh, Verona, Italy, we played at an arena in the middle of the town. It's like 2,000 years old. And you right. still see, you can see stuff on YouTube and bands still play there. But it's this crumbling Roman gladiator arena in the middle of uh, Verona. So playing those kind of places, and, and I talk about that, you know, we played in Berlin at a place where Hitler used to speak. So to me, and it's what I love about New York, it's all the ghosts floating around. I yeah. love ghosts. When I used to go to CBGB's, I think about the ghosts in there. I go to a Broadway theater, I go, the Winter Garden where I worked for years with Mamma Mia and School of Rock. I was like, wow, Barbara Streisand was on this stage when she was yeah. 20. You know, so uh, I wander around the Upper West Side you know, during the pandemic, trying to get some exercise. And I've stumbled onto the Gershwin's house and Miles Davis old brownstone. So I love any ghosts. So right. we went to a place that was like, wow, the Beatles played here. Yeah. Or, or as we said, wow, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar played here. Yeah, it was, it was always cool for me. So I don't know if mm -hmm. any, the Italy was my favorite country. The uh, Mediterranean coast in the south of Italy, the Amalfi coast was the most beautiful thing I saw. But I always say to people, surprisingly, ranking at number two, I would put Vancouver, Canada, which is okay. a beautiful, beautiful city, right. clean, modern, urban, you know, really nice. And you've got the mountains and the water and then this great city. So Vancouver was a great place, too. It's always fun to go to Los Angeles or Paris or right. London. Uh, Tokyo was amazing. So Absolutely. Now, you see, you played Mamma Mia for like 14 years. Were you a fan of ABBA before that? Uh, not really. I mean, yeah. I liked, I always liked Dancing Queen. Again, I grew up in the 70s. So yeah. uh, I came to appreciate some of their uh, other cuts as we played them. I became, you know, Knowing Me, Knowing You, uh, Name of the Game, or a couple of mm -hmm. tunes I really liked. Uh, I always joke, uh, people say, what's your favorite tune? And I would say Waterloo. And they go, why? I said, because it was the last one we played every night. <laughs> I was like a horse in the barn. As soon as I heard Waterloo, I knew I was almost off work. But right. I came to appreciate Abba's work, but it is that kind of Euro pop thing with a little bit of German and a little bit of French. So it was kind of like, it didn't seem like an American music to me. I recently subbed on a Jersey Boys, okay. you know, all the Frankie Valley music, which I'd kind of ignored. I didn't right. The 60s stuff seemed a little gimmicky to me. But boy, I really became a fan of Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. Those were some great tunes those guys wrote. So uh, 
I was a little bit of an Apple fan, but I love pop music. The Temptations show playing all those yeah. great Temptations tunes. I love that. But as I joked to the people, here's the good news. When you're learning a Broadway show, you have to commit the music to memory practically because you're under a lot of pressure to you know, yeah. produce. But when you turn the page at the Temptations show, it says my girl at the top of the page, you know what it sounds like. You yeah. don't go, how does this one go again? Right. <laughs> But neither does anybody in the audience. So yeah. don't play a wrong note because right. every person in every seat, no, down, 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 down. Yeah. If, you, if you mess it up, you know, you got hell to pay. But anyway, I love pop music. I, I, anything catchy. One of my favorite bands, it, it kind of people turn their nose up. I think it's Hall and Oates. I, thought I love were, Hall and Oates. Yeah. I think they're maybe some of the best pop craftsmen, mm -hmm. maybe not the artists that everybody are, but just write great songs. Yeah. You know, uh, never anything really esoteric everything was like built built to win you know and yeah. I, I saw them at the beacon theater 10 or 15 years ago and they played for two hours and then they'd go into a song you go oh yeah i forgot about it. oh yeah, yeah you know right so i love pop music yeah i, I, I that's why fusion or prog rock and all that i go it just seems a little heavy-handed to me I, right. I like i like like Goldilocks. I like my music to have a certain weight, you know, yeah. not too hard, not too soft, right. not, you know, that kind of thing, not too hot, not too cold. Yeah. Uh, so I like accessible music that, you know, it, you know, you whistle it after you've heard it, you want to hear it again. You know? Yeah. Like yeah. I see on Broadway, nobody, nobody leaves the theater humming the scenery. You better have some good songs. Yeah. yeah. And I grew up on AM radio. So right. pop music is, is kind of what I cut my teeth on. Yeah, and you mentioned like Hall and Oates. You've know, seen them a ton of times, and I, I had John Oates on a couple of years ago, and I asked him, "Is like a lot of artists will do like an albums, you know, tour, you know, front to back, play a couple albums. Like, you have so many albums. Why don't you guys do that?" And he's like, "We play 15 songs that everyone loves. It's sold at every night. Why change it?" Yeah, I'm like, well, okay, I I, I I respect that, but I'm like, you have some hardcore fans who would love to hear like some of these albums from front to cover. Yeah. Right, you sure. Know, well, Steely, Steely Dan does that. And Steely yeah, totally. One, yeah. one of those bands that uh, a little bit goes a long way for me. I love them, but it's also, it can be a little overly intellectual at times. Right, but, and I agree. Yeah. Uh, if I guess if I had to listen to a band the rest of my life, it would probably be Hall & Oates more so than Steely Dan. But right. uh, I, I agree with what John Oates said. And I always mm -hmm. remember an interview with Tony Bennett. And they asked him, don't you get tired of singing? I left my heart in mm -hmm. San Francisco right. every night. Yeah. And he said, Cole Porter told me a long time ago, play the songs the people want to hear. Yeah. And, and, and that's, and it's true. Right. And you would see artists like Bowie or Stevie Wonder say, okay, I'm, I'm retiring mm -hmm. my old catalog. I'm only going to yeah. play new music. Right. And, and even Paul McCartney makes fun of him and stuff. He says, he says, I look out when we're playing a Beatles tune and everybody's got their iPhone up in the air. Yeah. Filming it. Right. And he said, then I play a new tune. He said, all the iPhones disappear right. and people are in the bathroom. That's a break. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's people yeah. love the hits. It's true. Yeah. No, it's... So I, I'm totally with John Oates or Billy right. Joel or whoever that just play yeah. the hits. That's what right. people want to hear. I talk about it in the book. When yeah. we would play some obscure tune, people were like, eh. But right. as soon as you played the hit, they went yeah. crazy. So right. uh, yeah. that, like, that's fair. You know? yeah. yeah. Billy Joel like would have like, all right, well, the audience will vote on these songs. Right, we'll right. do like Vienna and then we'll do like River of Dreams. And then right. you get a big, you know, eruption for River of Dreams, you know? Sure. It's like, all right, 
guess you got to play that one, which he knew right away which one he's going to play because it's well. There's, least, there's a reason why there's a reason why they're hits, right? And that's what I tell people. I say, think of the most worn out song you can think of, whether right. it's "Stairway to Heaven" or "Proud Mary" or "I Heard right. It Through the Grapevine." Right. Respect, you know. You know why they're worn out? Because they're so damn good. good. Yeah. And if you can, a friend of mine says, take a Dom pill and listen to it like you've never heard it before. Right. And you go, wow. wow. That's what we put on Stairway to Heaven and pretend like you've never heard it yeah. before. Right. Go, this is amazing. So right. there's a reason why they're hits. It's not just yeah. some random DJ said, okay, this is the hit. Right. The people, it's like the dog and the dog food. If he doesn't yeah. like the taste of it, he won't eat it. Yeah, that's so, true. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's, you, there's a reason why there's hits. Right. Although, Sometimes you never know what the hit's going to be. You're surprised. You hear story after story of it. Yeah. I remember Cheryl Crow saying, all I want to do, her first big hit, yeah. was a throwaway tune. They weren't even going to put it on the album. Right. And it became her big hit. And I just read the uh, Ted Templeman biography, which is really good, the producer okay. of Van Halen and Doobie Brothers. Okay. And he said, both Blackwater and What a Fool Believes, they didn't think those tunes were hits. They were like problem yeah. songs. Right. And they're like, whatever. And then Blackwater became the Doobie Brothers' first number one. I mean, one, more so yeah. than Long Train Running or Listen to the Music or China Grove. Right. Blackwater was their like biggest hit. Yeah. yeah. So you never know what the hit's going to be, but the people speak and they'll let you know. So. Yeah, they'll let you know, right? Yeah. Like what a fool believes. You know, everyone thinks that song. Everyone has their own Michael McDonald uh, impersonation. Right. <laughs> but, but read the if you read the Ted yeah. Templeman book, which I highly recommend, the story behind that is amazing. Right. They just couldn't make the tune work. It was a square peg in a round hole. Yeah. And, and they did all these different versions of it and were at an impasse and going to throw the song away. And Michael McDonald's like, oh, I don't think it's any good. Yeah. And it was like, it was the number one song that year. You know? Right. Yeah. It was huge. Yeah. Although it did kind of break the rules quite a bit. It was interesting. It was fresh. You know? so, right. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that book out. I, it's, it's very good. Uh, I, I don't know a lot about Van Halen. That was kind of... I didn't really move in the hard rock thing. I was kind of formed by the time they really came out. Right. It was more of a police guy and yeah. uh, again, Prince and all that. But uh, the Doobie Brothers stuff in the book, which I I devoured Doobie Brothers music in the day. So I found that very interesting. And the Van Halen stuff is, is interesting as well, but uh, uh, it's a good book, but you never know, you know, the stories you go, Oh, I didn't know that song was going to do that. And, yeah. And so, Right. I would I'd recommend uh, and you mentioned before uh, Tessa Niles book. I don't know if you, if you read that one. Oh yeah, Tessa's book is great. Yeah, it, it's yeah. great. It's, the yeah, story she tells about Stevie Ray Vaughan sent chills oh, yeah, down my spine. I know. It was I awful. would tell everybody read that book for that alone. It's all, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, what I was going to say about what a fool believes or Steely Dan, I I read a, somebody say one time every cool song you've ever heard on the radio fell through the cracks and was a mistake because yeah. the suits were determined to keep the format. But it's like, right. so whenever you hear a song that breaks the rules, you know, it was the B side and the DJ flipped it over or something like yeah. that. So thank God that still happens. Cause you know, yeah. if we're left up to DJs and record execs, everything would sound exactly the same. Right. So like mentioning that, like, what like new artists like now or maybe the last 10 years that you enjoy? Well, for, up until recently, I really tried to keep my finger on the pulse of new music. I had mm -hmm. a studio and I was producing young artists and I was like, 
I need to know what Justin Bieber or Katy Perry or, you know, whoever right. uh, uh, sounds like. But I have to say, once I, I, I'd lost my studio, I lost the lease and I couldn't find a new space. So I kind of got out of the producing business a few yeah. years ago. And I've, I've done less and less listening to new music. I will go to Spotify and go to the top of the charts and click right. through. And, you know, I just have a hard time finding something that really resonates with me. The auto-tune drives me crazy. I know. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's an effect just like reverb now. It's like they put it on people that can sing in tune and they still auto tune them because right. it's like that certain spice they want on the record. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, and I remember reading a while ago that somebody said the guitar solo has been replaced by the cameo rap appearance. So there's no <laughs> guitar solos anymore. I tell people all the time, go to Spotify and, and send up a flare when you find any guitar on the top 50 yeah. tunes. Unless it's an acoustic thing there where somebody's trying to do their sensitive little yeah. you know, ballad, but yeah. you just, the guitars kind of disappeared. It's uh, keyboards and drum machines, yeah. and, but I'm cool with that. You know, the world only spins forward. I'm, I'm not one of those, the good old days, right. but I do find I relate to music that reminds me of older music. And at that point, instead of listening to a new artist that reminds me of Al Green, I just put on an Al Green, Al Green. record yeah. or Marvin Gaye to me. That Robin Thicke and uh, uh, Pharrell, that uh, Blurred Lines. Yeah. Who was Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye. It's like, I'll just I, listen well, to Got to Give It Up. Yeah, right. And yeah, yeah and I guess the, the courts, the, the courts, you know, sort of their way too. <laughs> yeah, right. But, uh, and, and that was another thing that was kind of disheartening to me as a producer, because I was trying to break new ground and do stuff. And then when I would see people, major artists just completely ripping songs off, like Bruno Mars, which a very talented cat. Yeah. But I used to say to people, they go, oh, that tune's brilliant. And I said, if I trace the Mona Lisa, does that make me brilliant? Because yeah, I feel like now I know that everything cycles and we've, you know, so I get it. But it's like some of this stuff is really derivative. And I was always trying to go, let's do something fresh. But meanwhile, I was watching people ring the bell with completely derivative music. And it was a little disheartening for me. So I don't know. I heard somebody say one time, nobody over 40 likes new music because they've all heard it. They've heard it already. Yeah. It is true to a certain extent, just like hemlines and lapels. It's just a cycle. Yeah. And, and I was kind of hoping that our, uh, the last four years in our country, which were kind of tumultuous, right. we would get our Crosby, Stills and Nash and our Joni Mitchell. Yeah. But if they're out there, I'm not finding them. Every, everything's so stratified now. Yeah. I, I do miss the good old days of when I grew up listening to the radio in the car, you would hear, uh, Dolly Parton, then Led Zeppelin, then James Brown. Right. You know, they played the hits, but now it's like, oh no, go to channel 197 on Sirius XM and yeah. all you hear is what you want to hear yeah. or Spotify. So right. we're not exposed to different stuff. Yeah. So there's probably an artist out there right now that says, I am the next Neil Young, but how am I going to find him? You know? Yeah. I mean, you make a great point about, you know, XM. I'm the same way. I have my four channels on XM. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll play them. Uh, yeah. I think people, I mean, they're probably on YouTube, all these yeah. people you talk about, but finding right. them is the hard thing because there's so right. much stuff out there. Right. Well, and, you know, I kind of have a theory that whatever you were listening to when you were 16 or 17 years old, that's the sweet spot. Right. And I don't care whether it was Benny Goodman or Justin Bieber. That's the music that makes you happy. Yeah. And uh, music is, you know, people talk about building a time machine. And I say, music is a time machine. Mm -hmm. I can hear a certain song and I'm 12 years old again. Absolutely. If I hear ABC or I Want You Back by the Jackson 5, for a few seconds, right. I am 12 again. 
Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's, it's weird being a musician where you want to push forward and break new ground and not, mm -hmm. uh, I heard somebody call it the narcotic of nostalgia. And I mm -hmm. think about that because it's, uh, I heard somebody say, if you're always looking in the rear view mirror, you're going to run off the road. So yeah. I try to look forward, but I am giving myself a little more leeway of like, man, just listen to the classics. It's like, there's so much great music that makes me feel good. And at this point that, you know, I kind of lean on that. I mean, my Sirius XM stays on the seventies or the eighties channel yeah. most yeah. of the time. Right. Same here. You know, I'll do first wave. Cause that way I do get to hear Led Zeppelin and Karen Carpenter back to back. Exactly. Yeah. That's the beauty it of it. Reminds me, which is what I liked, you know? Yeah. And then you I want to listen to the Led Zeppelin channel. I want to hear Fool in the Rain or whatever, but then I want to hear Close to You by the Carpenters right after it or Willie Nelson too. Right. You know? Yeah, you'll hear Van Halen, then you'll hear, yeah. you know, Michael yeah. Jackson, which is yeah, perfect. Sure. So, yeah, yeah, I know. I, I like, that's what I miss was the variety. Right. And maybe that's a, a, I'm dating myself or whatever, but back then, you know, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan were a little before my time. So I, I don't remember that. But I do remember when there was only three or four TV channels. So there was a reason why 50 million people watched Ed Sullivan. There was nothing else on. on, yeah. Now there's 50 million TV channels. Right. So we will never get the critical mass that we used to get of watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan or everybody owning the same record. You know, it used to be, you know, in the heyday, what, uh, what was it in sync one first week they sold over a million records their first week on one of their records now you're lucky if you sell a million ever right the number one record on the charts might sell forty thousand copies yeah so it's just spread out it's diluted right. for better or worse but yeah. i miss that kind of communal everybody loves this song everybody loves this show everybody loves you know this team i guess sports is still that way to a certain extent yeah. but even like going to the record store obviously is very you know a few of them now it's you can just search it on your phone and like which is the ease of it's great but i also miss the challenge of finding that song finding that oh, record i, in the I remember going in old vinyl stores and hunting through bin after bin yeah. and then you finally find something and a friend of mine said it's like fishing it's like right. waiting for that nibble and you find it mm -hmm. and i agree but i love spotify whatever mood i'm in whether it's mozart or waylon jennings i just right. type in the name and hit go yeah, so man. it is amazing Right. But, I mean, I walk on the Upper West Side and look, oh, there's a furniture store where Tower Records used to be. And I think how excited cool. I used to be to walk in Tower Records yeah. or bookstores, bookstores or record stores. Yeah. And, and I lament that being gone. I understand it. It's like yeah. I loved MTV when it first came out. And you'd sit there and yeah. watch video after video. It's addictive. Yeah. And, you know, people say, well, why don't they start showing videos again? I'm like, why is somebody going to wait around to see Jump when they can type it into YouTube and see it right now? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get that, you know, that's progress. But, boy, going to a record store or watching MTV waiting for your favorite mm -hmm. artist to come yeah. on. or And like I said, when I was growing up, music was not on TV. You Maybe Friday or Saturday night, right. I mean, you'd have American Bandstand on the weekend. And Saturday night, Don Kirshner's rock concert or something like that or Midnight Special. That was it. And when I tell people, you know, music was, I'm not going to say it was, I hesitate to say it was more special, but when you saved your money and bought an album and read the liner notes, mm -hmm. listened to every cut, right. you know, now with streaming, we're back to like the days of 45 records where you just listen to the hits. 
you know? Yeah, exactly. Why, yeah. why even make an album? Who listens to an album? That's the thing. A lot of artists now just do like EPs, you know, or release yeah. a single in a, uh, a month. Just release a song every month, like Beyonce. You know, yeah. you don't, you don't yeah. have to make a record. I mean, nobody right. listens to an A. People say, what's an A side or a B side? And yeah, it's like, no one knows anymore. Man, there was no sides. I remember, uh, you know, I mentioned the book that I became friends with John Bon Jovi. And John said something to me one time that uh, he said, the problem with MP3s, I forget I own them. He said, I'll yeah. buy them. And then they go into my iPhone. Right. And then I go, oh, I need to get that tune. Oh, I bought it a month yeah. ago because it's yeah. not physically in your hands. Mm -hmm. You forget yeah. that you even own it. And it's out of sight, out of mind. That's why I still like buying hard copy books. I mean, I appreciate you getting the audio book of my right. book, but the audio or the Kindle. And if I was on the road, I would totally do Kindle or ebook. But I like filling my bookshelf with books and I see the spines and go, oh, yeah, there's the Clapton book. There's the Springsteen yeah. book or whatever. So I, I, of that age where I like the physical, the, the tactile analog version of everything. So. Yeah. I mean, I was the same way with books and CDs. I just don't have any space anymore for all, all right. of them. That's the thing. It's, it's unfortunate. <laughs> I saw somebody say the other day they had a thousand CDs and they were trying to give them away. Oh, so yeah. Their CD collection, like I don't need any more Spotify, all yeah. of these songs I'm moving. I don't, you know, I still mm -hmm. have all my vinyl, which right. is kind of, it's more of a museum. It's not really functional because the records I loved as a kid are destroyed from scratches. Right. Uh, the records that are pristine are records I never liked that much anyway. But exactly. I like the artwork. I like the actual mm -hmm. vinyl. But right. my CD collection, I have no connection to my CD collection. Box sets, maybe. But, you know, I don't care. Yeah. I never listen to a CD. I mean, Apple stopped putting drives, disk drives in the computer years yeah. ago. I know. People it's... give me a CD now. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with yeah. Like right. said, it's a round business card is all it is you know? exactly because i'd still go to spotify i'll buy their cd but i'll still go to spotify and dial it up to listen to it right Stay shrink wrap you know yeah i'll have some like i have like binders and binders there in my closet and it's like i don't have a cd player in my house anymore right yeah you know so I, I, I went i went more. down to b h and bought a 30 dollar usb cd player because people would give me cds and i had no way of playing them right and uh i know people shake their fist at, at apple or mac but you just got to watch them. They're telling you where it's going. You know? yeah, what exactly. you, you're getting rid of the disk drive. What do you mean you're yeah. everything's, you know, getting rid of the iTunes store? They're like, it's over. It's yeah. streaming now, you know. Yeah. They're going to drag you into the future whether you like it or not. So. Right. Which is the same for the artists because they work so hard and then you can just get the song for free and they get you know, pennies compared yeah. to what they were the shame. Well, that's what, you know, I don't know if I addressed it in my book, but I clearly remember Sting saying that, his tour was a losing proposition where the money was made was physical sales of the album. Right. Now that's been completely flipped on its head. Yeah. If you don't tour, you don't make any money. money. Right. And it's, and even then though, it's about the merch as much as it is the ticket sales. And every night we get on our private plane and Sting would ask the accountant, what was the number? Yeah. And he would say, 25. And I'm like, what are they talking about? And he's like, averaged over every person there. If we had, 10,000 people there, it was $250,000 worth of merch, you know, which they split with the venue at some yeah. cost. But the t-shirts and the yeah. hats and the posters, that's where the, the real money is. Money was right. Yeah, yeah, it still is that way. It's like, because the t-shirt you can wear to work the next day and show all your friends that you you're, were at the, yeah. at the Bon Jovi concert last night. So uh, yeah. the, mer the merch is the real gold. Right. You know? The music will give away, just buy the shirts. Buy the shirt, yeah. Which I always think about a story that just blows my mind. I, I read about 
the Beatles, Brian Epstein, their manager. Right. Somebody came to him and said, we want to do Beatles merch. This is early in the run. And he said, they said, what kind of deal do you want? He says, uh, I'll give you guys 90%. I'll take 10%. He was a fool, right? But he didn't know. Right. So when they gave him his first check. He thought they'd given him 100%. He said, aren't you going to take your 90% out? Yeah. And they said, we already have. Yeah. He, his 10% was larger than he thought the whole thing was going to be. Yeah. Huge money. Right. Absolutely. But um, buy, buy the physical copy of, you know, do you stand so close, but you also have the Kindle and the. Yeah, right. Well, it's available as audiobook, ebook, or the hard copy, however you want to do it. So, uh, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, I've had friends say to me, uh, man, I haven't read a book since high school, but I've read your book twice. You know, yeah. uh, reading is an interesting, people are, you know, kind of, my wife always says people are dog people or cat people. I always ask people, do you like to read? Because if the answer is no, you're giving them homework. They don't have any desire sure. to do it. And yeah. I've had to teach myself to read. I've read a lot, especially during the shutdown, the pandemic. And I realized we developed these bad habits as students. We're skimming through as fast as we can, trying to just retain enough to pass the test. Mm -hmm. But when you're reading a book for entertainment, that's not the way you're supposed to read. So I've yeah. learned to read really slowly and think about what the author's saying. And, uh, but I tell people, even if you don't like to read, my book's a fun read. It is. And it's written as a journal. It's almost like a daily, you know, bite-sized stories from the road. So it's not like, because there's nothing worse than reading a book and you're looking, where's the end of this chapter? I'm, I'm, I'm tired of reading. Right. My book doesn't feel that way because it's, like I said, single paragraphs or one page of here's what happened in London. Here's what happened in Paris. Here's what happened yesterday. So it's more like reading somebody's diary or journal than it is reading a novel. So, but it, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people say, wow, man, I, I don't like to read and this is great. Or people say, oh, I burned through it in one day or two days because I couldn't put it down. You know, and I used to joke with my wife when I was writing it because I'd never written anything. So it was really challenging. Right. I, I didn't know what it took to write a good book because the first draft was horrible. Right. And then I rolled up my sleeves and really started trying to make it sound like a book. But I kept telling her, I want to write a page turner not an eye roller because you know you read I, some people's books i pick up and i'm just rolling my eyes like really you think really? this is interesting yeah so i i think i succeeded because i've oh, had you, you totally pe did people that have no reason to you know you know people say oh well, of course your mom likes it or your wife likes it right. but i've had complete strangers that are pretty critical mm -hmm. say oh wow this is one of the best books i've ever read so that makes me really proud yeah. and uh you know i'll never get rich from it but I hear from people all over the world that'll write me and say, oh, I saw you on Saturday Night Live and that's why I started playing guitar or this is the best book I've read in years. And, you know, and I'll get my invoices from Amazon and like, oh, I just sold nine books in Australia. Oh, I sold three books in yeah. India. And that's really exciting. Is, so yeah. uh, the compensation for me is knowing that people like it. It's not about, you know, yeah. this point, who cares, you know, unless you're, Michelle Obama, you're probably not going to really make that much money selling your book yeah. or, or Harry Potter. Yeah. And even when I was writing the book, I thought, oh man, this is a book about going around the world with Sting. This is going to be a huge hit. And I really struggled to find a publisher that would even, the big publishers wouldn't go anywhere near it. And then I finally realized, well, they know a music memoir is never going to, you know, sell but so much. Mm -hmm. Whereas the next Harry Potter or the next right. uh, uh, Twilight or, yeah. 50 shades of gray they can sell millions of copies of that right. but 
you, it's always a very well-kept secret. You don't know the sales on books, but I mean, what's the biggest musician book ever? I don't know. Clapton, Springsteen, Greg Allman, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And yeah. I can't imagine they sell a fraction of what Harry Potter sold. Right. Because there's always kids, you know, growing up the age yeah. and kids, sure. kids read them. And it's, yeah. Right. So I, I, I've learned that a music memoir is kind of a niche uh, product. Oh. But uh, so, as I said, it's not about I'm not going to move into a mansion off of my book sales. Right. But when I get an email from a guy in Japan or a guy in Poland, it says, man, mm. I loved your book. That really makes my day. So mm. I, I promise the listeners it's a fun read. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. Uh, it's funny. And it's uh, one friend read it and said, I really like it. He said, but it, that some, one of those stories in Tokyo was really sad. And I'm like, good. I want, yeah. I want right. to experience the ups and the downs of it. So, you know, there are a lot of emotions in the book and it's, yeah. it's, it's great. I recommend it to everybody to stand so close, but Jeff, I really appreciate your time today. This was fantastic. Sure, no. Yeah. It's great to talk to you and uh, I appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show. And a special thanks to Jeff for joining me today. Go check out the book. Do stand so close. It's wherever books are found. Like I said, the audio version is fantastic. If you want to follow Jeff on Twitter, he's at Jeffrey Lee C. His website is jeffreyleecampbell.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first null one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the best episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. A new episode comes in every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you then. <laughs>